Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight we have two of our regular panel, founder Troy Goodfellow and staff surgeon Dr. Bruce Garrick. Hi, everyone. Hey, hello gamers. How great are all games? Aren't they great? That's what I like to hear. I like that positivity. Just keep, just keep, just keep giving, that, giving us that, Bruce. Here we go. No more negativity from you. None. We also welcome back our old friend and no stranger to negativity, quarter three's Tom Check. I give all games a 7.2. It's a good safe score. Responsible. No, it's not. That's, that's slamming it. That's like a serious hardcore slam. That means you hate it. 7.2. That's right. I'm sticking by that. I'm very confused, by the way, about this game. I want to, I can't wait to hear from the guy who you're about to introduce because I don't know about you guys. I keep wanting to call this game something about a princess. Like I want to call it like Fallen Princess or Enchanted Princess. That's what With I little accidentally keep calling this. Yeah, it should have like for some reason somewhere over the development cycle, I got in my head that there was a princess involved, and I want to know where that came from and why there isn't actually a princess. You're the princess, Tom. <laughs> it, it, isn't much. it subtitled like uh, Fallen Enchantress: colon, The Last Starfighter? We did sneak a lavender pony in the last patch for one of our uh, one of the the members of the player community. So I, I guess you could almost get there. You could almost make your princess uh, game if you wanted to. I like that. Hey, and who that was that, tonight, Rob? That is tonight's <laughs> guest, Derek Paxton of Stardock and lead designer of the recently released. Uh, oh God, um, Enchanted Princess. Uh, <laughs> Twilight. Oh jeez. <laughs> Fallen Enchantress. Yes, I could just imagine Stephanie uh, cringing somewhere, but... <laughs> oh my god, I'm so glad she's not here to like babysit this uh, this chat, because, man, I, it would just be like flooded with hatred right now. <laughs> no, no adults are present. We are, we are safe. No supervision. All right. Uh, so Fallen Enchantress is the follow-up to... God, has it been two years? Was it 2010's Elemental? Yeah. Yeah, so it's the follow-up to 2010's Elemental, a... Uh, 4X RPG strategy game from Stardock that did not go smoothly and did not go according to plan and was uh, you know a real disappointment to Stardock and a lot of the community. And in the two years uh, since it was released, they brought on Derek to, as I understand it, kind of fix the game and find find what was what was good and what worked well in Elemental and create something new and better out of it. Uh, Derek, would you talk us through sort of like the brief you were given as you came aboard? Um, I think your synopsis is, is absolutely fair. Stardock wasn't, it didn't feel like a War of Magic hit the quality standard that they were, they, they wanted for their players. Um, and they wanted to make good on that uh, a game that they had promised. Uh, so they, they did something that I thought was, was extraordinary when, when they talked to me that they were going to give uh, the next two games um, that they made, the next two uh, games in the Elemental series, for free to anybody that had purchased War of Magic in 2010. Um, so Fallen Enchantress is the, the, the first game in that series. So um, because they felt like, you know, those people paid, you know, good money for a game and that game might not have lived up to that standard, um, you know, that they stepped back, um, Brad stepped back and said, all right, well, let's start from rebuild a new game from scratch, the, the game that we want it to be. Um, they were uh, gracious enough to offer me the opportunity to come in and, and help with that to, to act as the, the designer and producer on the game. Uh, it's it's a, a genre that I'm very passionate about and that I love. I love 4X games. I love fantasy games especially. 
I was very excited by the concept of um, what was happening in the elemental universe of a, of a game that was a 4X game, but had a lot of RPG conventions in it and really felt like you were, you were in that, you know, RPG world uh, that would have you know, the princesses that, that Tom is looking for. <laughs> as long um, as there's so I, a lavender pony, I'm okay. That's right. Uh, we have that. Then we're set. Check that right off the list. Um, uh, so I was excited to be able to come in and help build that game. Uh, literally from, from the ground up, you know, we didn't, we didn't take the game and, and try to fix, you know, war magic. And if we do these three things, then, uh, you know, it takes care of everything. Uh, we, we we knocked out all the mechanics, built the game that, that we wanted. We spent you know two years on it, and then uh, give that game for free to everybody that had, that had bought War Magic. Now I, I want to ask you a question, Derek. If you don't if you don't mind me jumping in, Rob. Uh, I, I think I know you, and I think a lot of folks who are into uh, strategy gaming know you as the fellow behind the mod Fall from Heaven for Civilization Four, uh, and. I presume that's where Brad, certainly, uh, where you came to his attention, where he thought, hey, this guy would be great to breathe new life into Elemental. Um, one of the things that Fall for, from Heaven is known for is are, are these crazy, dramatic, unique game dynamics for each faction. You know, there was the crazy puppet-making faction. There was the cave dwellers with a completely different resource model, uh, the way you mixed and matched religion to, to create every every side. There, there was an apocalypse tearing across the entire map. Um, th- there was just so much unbridled creativity in Fall from Heaven, uh, almost too much at times. Uh, it was insane. Uh, and yet Fallen Enchantress... Uh, seems like that's dialed down a little bit, and that's not necessarily a criticism. Uh, it's easier to kind of wrap your head around what's going on in, in Fallen Enchantress. Um, is that intentional? Was that a function of there was a, a preset game mechanic in place? Um, explain some of the differences between why Fall from Heaven is so incredibly crazy and over the top, and Fallen Enchantress is a bit more reasonable in that regard. Uh, there is one of the big differences between Fall from Heaven and Fallen Enchantress is uh, Fallen Enchantress really supports player customization a lot. So I can uh, not only make my custom faction and I can pick and choose the things I want to do that, I can also make my, my custom sovereign, the guy who's going to lead that faction, and I can give him all kinds of traits and abilities and choose. He's really good at fire magic and air magic, or he's a, he's a warlord, or he's a, uh, you know, he's a bandit leader, so he starts with these bandit units and he can recruit other ones that he comes across. He's a beast lord, so he can tame these nasty monsters that's in the world, or, or all of these different things, but the player can make it. When you start the game, then, you have access to all of the pre-constructed units that we give you, but you can drop into unit design and you can make your own armies too. And you can give, you know, this guy a spear and a helmet, but he doesn't wear a shirt because I don't want the guy wearing a shirt. And he has, you know, <laughs> you know, these big poofy pants on and this guy has a, a cloak and that's all he's wearing. And, you know, anything that, that you want to do, um, which is very cool, but is exactly the opposite of a controlled... Um, very fixed environment or fall from heaven we said these are exactly what the factions are and we can get very specific about them but the more we open up to players to be able to customize and say I, I can't create a custom unit that looks exactly like this because I'm really trying to make tools where I can make this helmet and you could put it on any one of the guys in the game this spear can go on any of the guys in the game um, these traits you can you can flip on and off so kind of the beauty is with our wraith faction we we 
created uh, you know, one of the pre-constructed units. When he kills somebody, that gives your faction mana. Well, that's neat, but in Fall from Heaven, that would have been one unit that when he kills somebody, gives you mana. On the Fallen Enchanter side, that's a trait, and the players are free to grab that trait and put it on any unit they want to. Um, so it's a lot more open. Because of that openness, it often feels like they don't. The, the factions aren't as uniquely divergent to each other because you really it, it's a set of Legos that we're giving the player to go right. ahead and build what they want to build. Go ahead. Sorry, I love that Lego analogy, by the way. Uh, yeah, because that's exactly how it feels with the design your own unit bit uh, and mixing and matching the sovereign with the faction. Uh, yeah, I definitely get the sense that there's little cool modules and you snap them together to create what you want. Yeah, yeah, and and that. Uh, and I do feel like we do have that faction differentiation there. Um, and the Tarth, for example, if you play in the pre-constructed ones, the monsters ignore them. They, they, they oh. can wander the world and go anywhere they want to. And it, it creates a very different play dynamic than if you are playing um, uh, Yithril with their, their high-level units. They're really powerful trained units. Or Paradin that can just create outposts um, just through a spell. So they start claiming their land by just going, you know, spell, spell, spell. And suddenly they've grown their borders and they've claimed all these magical shards and crystals and resources just from from turn one. And it, it definitely changes the way you play. And that's what was... There's not a single... Uh, no, go ahead, Tom. Well, I was going to say, there's not a single... When you mention that Tarth ability to be ignored by monsters, there, there's no faction in this game of the ones I've tried. I guess there's, there's eight, ten, ten. There are ten factions, and every single one has at least one thing that when I'm not playing that faction, I feel like, oh, I wish I was playing that other faction. I mean, every single one has something that I feel like I cannot, I absolutely can't live without. Yeah, we've had that especially with Tarth, where some of the the intern, some of the development team is just really accustomed to playing as Tarth, and then they go to play somebody else, and they're like, I I, I can't do it. I, I have to go back to Tarth again. The monsters, they're just they're they're mean. <laughs> yes, yeah, they but are. they can't they can't use magic to make outposts. That's crazy. Why would you play Tarth? <laughs> yeah. Actually, I was I was going to wait to to get into this a little bit, but you mentioning Tarth's ability to uh, sort of wander the landscape and not get ambushed by monsters, uh, kind of touches on that's a powerful early game ability. It's seems, and that kind of touches on something that I think uh, Troy and I have both struggled with a bit in Elemental, uh, in, Fall, in Fallen Enchantress, uh, is that it, it can be tough to get off to a good start, wouldn't you say, Troy? Yeah, I mean, this, I mean, many strategy games, a lot, uh, just the pace is set at the very beginning. I mean, in Civilization, you get stuck in a jungle. You have to make the most of it, but you're stuck in a jungle. In Fallen Enchantress, a lot of the times it feels like, and this isn't necessarily criticism, but something you have to work through and accept, you're stuck with you know one place to settle your people, and you're surrounded by monsters and villains and crap you can't settle or do anything with. So you've got to go out and try to find an outpost and try to survive out there. And it can make so the early game is actually quite a bit more difficult than I think it was in the original Elemental, where it was quite a bit easier to get a few cities up and going. Um, there was you were overwhelmed with the number of quests bombarding you in the, in the early game with Elemental. But Fallen Enchantress, the early game struggles really about, holy crap, where do I live? What can I claim? It's it really does have this feeling of an absolutely totally distraught fallen world. But you know the counterpoint is because the maps are so random, you can roll a map that is. It's like the promised land. It's a land of milk and honey. You can settle people everywhere, and you're claiming all kinds of crap, and all the monsters are weak, and you don't have a giant ogre festival going on in the middle of your townships, which is what it feels like half the time. So 
is there can you talk about how about how you balance the opening game, the early game? Is there a way to balance it, or is it just so randomized that it's it's quite difficult and very different from one game to the next? I mean, there isn't any good set path for me to follow. I have put I put in probably about ten, twelve hours now, and it's every time I roll up a new map, it's like, holy god damn it, what do I do with this? And sometimes it's great, and sometimes it's a real mess. And a lot depends on choosing the right faction for the map you roll, it seems. Um, can you talk a bit about designing the early game, what you're trying to achieve there? Yeah, we have to be really careful about our starting locations to make sure the player has an opportunity there, because... Uh, starting, I, I hate... the starting location is one thing. It's everything three tiles outside that starting location. Yeah. Hey, hey guys, can I jump in for a second yeah, just sure. uh, and, and ask uh, if, Derek, as you're explaining this, can you just, for the people who haven't played the game, can you just explain to them some, some of the choices that players are making early on and right. what, I mean, kind of what the game does, uh, assuming that not everybody who's listening actually owns Elemental and is loving it? Right. Oh, that's a great point. Yes. Uh, all right. So when you start the game, you have a wide variety of options to choose when you create that initial map, uh, including we provide some uh, pre-constructed maps, which help ease through all this. Um, you know, they've, we've set every mountain, we've set every river, we've set, we've, we've traced some roads that, that are already existing when you start. So I, I highly encourage anybody playing for their first couple games um, to play on the, the pre-constructed maps and, and then go to the random maps later on. The random maps, uh, you know, give you a lot more flexibility flexibility and the type of worlds barren fertile and that that you want to play with um, but they will be a lot more uh, wild for the amount of where monsters are set you could run into uh, we have some controls around how close a dragon is allowed to be placed to your starting location how close uh, an ogre is allowed to be to your starting location every individual monster layer has a control in there but at the end of the day it still is randomly generated, and, and that dragon, if he's not allowed to be within 12 tiles of your starting location, could be right there on tile, you know, 12 tiles away. And that could be a very important tile if it's right between two mountains, if it's that valley gap between two mountains, and there's a dragon sitting there, then there's little chance you're going to get through there anytime soon. Um, well, this sort of ties into something else that is at work in the early game, and, and is sort of crucial to the game setting, I think, which is that, like, Fallen Enchantress and this world is really kind of a post-apocalyptic uh, fantasy world. It's, it really begins in this sort of Mad Max state, and so it's actually very hard to find anywhere to settle. It's not like civilization where you send a settler out and, you know, you've got the entire world before you, and somewhere habitable and good is probably going to be nearby, not too far away. And you can sort of create a nice, orderly uh, kingdom. That's not really how uh, Fallen Enchantress works at all. And that's kind of where I start running into trouble in the early game, where I, where I get... It, it's both, you know, kind of exciting and frustrating, for me at least, because, you know, you see, like, it, it's not so much about how things, how close things are, are spawning, uh, how close they're spawning to my starting location. It's that my next settlement location might be an incredibly far distance away, and it can be very hard to find, like, you know, to scout around and, and find your way to, you know, any place that's going to do anything for you. Isn't that, though, a function of the map, though, Rob? I mean, you can have maps that have more common fertile terrain, 
but one of the, but it is unique in that it doesn't allow like city spam. City spam is the way you optimize a game like Civilization IV, for instance. Is you cram a city wherever you can fit it. Uh, you look at the terrain. You sort of figure out, you know, how much can I suck out of this terrain? You know, how can I get the most resources out of it? But one of the things they do in Elemental that requires a bit of a mental shift. And I love this about it is that thing you're talking about, Rob, in that you, you, cities can only go in so many spaces on a map. A map can only support so many cities. And it's about, you know, building on those places. And if someone gets there first, you then have to decide, am I going to take over his city or am I just going to live with the fact that I didn't get that spot? And what it reminds me of a little bit as an RTS player is some RTSs, I, I think uh, Age of Mythology did this. I know some of Ensemble's other games have done this. They just have town center nodes. It's the only place you can build a city and you have to fight over those. Uh, and so I sort of get that sensibility with, with, Fallen, uh, with Fallen Enchantress where there are certain nodes where you can build cities. And, and even though, Rob, you build your city, your next city is going to be a long ways away, the AI players are having to deal with the same thing. It's not well, they, like you're they, struggling. They, 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 might, they might not be dealing with the same thing. It depends on how the map is balanced, right? Right. I mean, right. I, I might be like 50 squares away from a good settlement, and they could have it only five because of the way the map is structured. I mean – or they're a different faction, so they can settle on different types of land. So it's not like every civil. Well, I don't like, think factions that, can settle well, on different types of land. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a very map specific thing. You know, they yeah. they don't mix up right. those mechanics. Um, but, but, but unlike an RTS, where everybody can has the same opportunities and they're all from the same distance from because the maps are some symmetrical in an RTS map. Right. These El- fallen chance maps are not symmetrical. You don't know. It might be a much farther trek for me. Then yes, I have to deal with I have to deal with that cost. I have to deal with losing it. I have to come with an alternate strategy dealing with it. I have to use outposts more often than cities. I have to you know really rush that army thing. But since cities are so closely tied to research, I mean building a second city isn't city spam. Well, I, I want to turn this turn this uh, back back to Derek for one second because I think what's kind of interesting about this early game is for me I do think it's, it creates some issues but I also think it ties in really nicely in some ways with what Fallen Enchantress is all about which is it's not a pure strategy game it's it's not just you know optimizing and expanding it's also an RPG sort of set in a menacing and fallen world and so I, I I'm I'd be kind of inter- interested to hear you talk about balancing sort of what we expect from strategy games and then sort of the randomness and, uh, you know, more punishing aspects uh, that you find in an RPG. Yeah, the, a lot of that, uh, the city spam that you mentioned, or just creating those cities, that's, it's intentional too. We really went through a lot of effort to try to um, dial down the amount of cities that a player has and a player controls so they don't get into that late game. You know, I have a bunch of queues that I feel like I have to get busy or what am I building in city A and B and C? Um, so we really wanted to make those cities rarer. We wanted to make those cities uh, more special, more meaningful for the player. When you see those um, areas out there you can found a city on, you'll see these the tile yields on all those locations that are broken up into grain yields, uh, and each tile will show you how much grain it gives, how much materials it gives, and some tiles uh, give essence. Uh, grain, the more grain a tile has, the larger population that city can support, so the, the higher city level it can get to, the more things it can build. Um, the materials is, is production for that city. The higher production I found a city on, uh, the more the more materials that city has available to it when I found it, um, the 
faster it can train units, it can build improvements and all that kind of stuff. And Essence is kind of our uh, our secret weapon where if, if a city has access to Essence, that controls how many city enchantments I can place on it. So about half of our locations don't have any Essence. Um, you may see one, two, or three. If it has one Essence on there, I can I can cast an uh, enchantment on it that increases uh, the amount of gold that... that uh, cast a, a, a cast wall of fire on it, so that city is protected by a wall of fire now. Anybody that attacks it has to go through it and takes damage. And you know, and if I have three essence in that city, there's three different enchantments I can put on that city and and uh, you know really protect it and make it more of a uh, magical city and boost units, help them out. So I think that's one of the things that that was I was impressed by in the design was the fact that I think when you have the role-playing kind of elements and the strategy elements, it's easy for those two to get disconnected, and all the things that you're talking about are things that sort of, you have to tie one element to another, or else uh, one game that um, that kind of failed that test was uh, Heroes of Might and Magic, gee, was it four, I think? Um, where you had the ability, that, you know, that one, of the, one of the fundamental tenets of the, that series was that heroes couldn't sort of... Um, run around by themselves on the map, and then when they disconnected them and you had these little, uh, you know, adventurer parties, they could become so powerful that they sort of subverted all the other me- all the other game mechanics, and you could just run, all you did was you turned the game into sort of like a turn-based role-playing game where you built up your characters and then went and killed everything and uh, made all the other uh, elements kind of superfluous. So that's the thing that you're talking about, you know, you have to, the research to, to increase your army size and, and, and all the other elements that, that keep, um, they, they keep the role-playing uh, part of it kind of tied down, but still an important part of the game. I, I, I was I was uh, interested in how how well that was designed. Oh, I just want to say what that reminds me of before you mentioned uh, Derek. Uh, it, it reminds me a lot of what I love about XCOM, how it ties together this strategic level of the game, and and with that it advances this, these tactical battles that you're fighting. Uh, I know a lot of times 4X strategy games games struggle with how can we balance these tactical battles and the strategic stuff? How can we make a tactical battle meaningful without it being a matter of just running over the stupid AI? Uh, I love how that RPG system informs that st- strategy level 4X uh, city-building game. Uh, I love how those two elements uh, sort of inter- interweave. Um, so, Derek, yeah, I, I, I cut you off, but I just want to say, like Bruce is saying, that you, you did a great job tying those elements together. Yeah, that was re- really the trick for us was to... Uh, we are a 4x game at, at the end of the day but anything that we can give that that makes it feel rpg-ish so we have our champions that level up and when they get to level four they can pick what kind of champion they're going to be they're going to be a defender a warrior an assassin a mage um, but our cities go through that same since since we are a yeah. 4x game and it is about your empire at the end of the day uh, your champions are nice and and you know you have a lot of tie to them but we wanted to bring that level of depth to the cities. When your cities level up, there instead of experience points, they have population. When you you build ends and, and stuff to bring more people to your city, when it gets enough population, it levels up. And then you choose what your you know your little fledgling city is going to be. Is it going to become a fortress, a conclave, which is kind of your center for magical and uh, magic and research, or is it going to be a, a town, which is kind of good for growing further as well as uh, bringing uh, gold into your empire? And towns kind of generally boost the entire empire instead of just themselves, where fortresses are about creating uh, you know really tough units and defense and uh, conclaves are like I mentioned magic and research so try and then as they continue to level up they get access to special improvements the enchantment system itself right and cast X enchantments on a city is very akin to you know taking my champions and choosing what equipment they're going to have so yeah. it, it, it gives that feel 
And it is funny, too, how that, that bar, we're so accustomed to filling up a granary, and then when it fills up, the city gets one point of population, and it can work one more tile. We're so used to that, and it is so awesome playing Fallen Enchantress and seeing the equivalent of an XP bar fill up. You know, food is really your experience. Uh, I love looking at the map and seeing those three numbers, food, materials, enchantment, and one of them is, do I want this city to be high level? Do I want it to early on build a lot of cool stuff that's material, or you call it a secret weapon, do I want to play with a little enchantment stuff? I love how you guys buck the trend of, of what we've learned from civilization about how cities grow. I also just want to throw in here too, and I, I kind of wish actually I, I, you know, spent, you know, two weeks, if I had gone back two weeks ago and played Elemental, because I, I find it actually harder to remember more details about Elemental than I might wish. But I, I do feel that what's been really, you know, encouraging about Fallen Enchantress is that you had all these you had all these elements in elemental that I don't remember really hanging together at all like I don't think elemental really licked that problem of city spam uh, for instance because it was it was an incredibly easy game to expand and just play as a pure 4x so much so that a lot of those uh, fantastical trappings a lot of those RPG trappings kind of became I could take them or leave them it did, they didn't really matter that much and and I kind of feel like with Fallen Enchantress every single aspect of the game has been sort of touched by the RPG uh part of its identity yeah, I, I really loved the concept of War of Magic when, you know, I saw that the, the, the game that they, they wanted to make. And in fact, going back and reading the early concept docs for the game was where I started with Fallen Enchantress. I said, yeah, th this stuff is really awesome. You know, let's let's bring that in. Uh, as well as, you know, just trying to pull together, cut out the pieces that didn't fit into that model. There are some things in War of Magic that were cut entirely. Uh, and there are some things in... Um, Fallen Enchantress that are that are there are actually lots of things in Fallen Enchantress that are brand new from that design, but just helped those different layers kind of, yeah, just like you say, gel. So so when you're making a decision at one layer of the game, uh, it is affecting every other piece. Actually, I'd, I'd kind of love to go back to that moment you just talked about going back and looking at the uh, you know sort of original design documents for Elemental, and I'm I'm kind of curious. I don't know a lot of people who've sort of been brought in to take a design that basically went off the rails and completely, you know, not completely like, you know, create a new one, but somehow preserve part of its identity while radically reshaping it. And I'm wondering if you could talk us through a bit of, a bit of that process uh, fr from when you were brought aboard. Uh, sure. S uh, Stardock um, created... The amazing uh, Galsiv, uh, you know, the Galactic Civilization series, uh, phenomenal games, and they'd been making that. That they're very familiar with that franchise. They'd gone through several versions, several expansions, so they were very accustomed to the. Everybody on the team knows what the game is. Everybody on the team knows what the, the end goal is. So they're going to make an expansion for the game. They're going to add in these, you know, three new features. They're going to be awesome. They're going to put it out there. Players are going to love it. Everybody's going to have fun. They have a fun base. Um, I uh, look at that very akin to what what. I did with Fall from Heaven, where I had Civ 4 as a base, which was an amazing game, one of the best turn-based strategy games ever made, and had the joy of being able to build a, a fantasy uh, uh, 4X game on top of what was already there. That's wonderful. It's like putting frosting on an already delicious cake. Um, for War of Magic, Stardock 
underestimated that groundwork, uh, what the core of the game and how all those mechanics, the economic piece of the game and how that fits together and uh, not understanding, you know, just kind of assuming that those things would happen, those things would, would come together. And what you end up with was when you, when you approach a full game with an expansion mentality or, or expansion habits, uh, you end up with a lot of interesting mechanics that don't relate to any one common vision. Um, so for me, uh, it was coming in and, and taking that the, the vision of the game, not the mechanics of the game, or not any of the implementation of the game, but just okay, what is the game you want to make? It's a 4x game where you should feel like you know this is a, a Dungeons and Dragons sort of world. This is a, a world where you know you, you see that that ogre in his camp sitting on top of a hill, and it, it feels like there's a story to it there, uh, and, and making that into a game, and. It was my first experience, having been a modder, of, of trying to create that infrastructure too. And, and I was surprised going through the process of Fallen Enchantress and had to go through some struggles to try to build that, that bottom layer, the economic layer of the game is really, really tough. And we went through three major versions of it where we implemented my initial design. And it was, it was a beautiful design in that it had lots of knobs and levers and, and it was cool <laughs> how everything worked and it was really fun to design. And that almost always means it's not at all fun to play. And it was, it was true here too. I want to talk a bit about the, um, the world level quest stuff. It's really these huge, big epic quests that are going on in the game. When I stumble upon them. It's like, wow, this is something that, Elemental sort of promised, but never delivered on. I think one of the great things with Elemental uh, War of Magic and a lot of the preview materials and stuff Brad talked about was the sense of this world that he was building. A world that just did not come across at all in War of Magic. But here I am playing Fallen Enchantress this morning, wandering around, running into my neighbors, and I find this valley full of scrap iron and scrap metal. And there are armies in there. I can just clear out and get all of this loot. And it's a quest of mine as just generated to clear out this valley full of stuff. And if, you know, Magnar hadn't declared war on me just then, I had the feeling that something really cool was going to happen in there. But, you know, Magnar was kind of tough. Those are uh, the Wildlands modules, aren't yeah, they? Those, yeah, those, yeah, they're just, yeah, Wildland modules, they feel mm -hmm. like these world level huge quests. And it's just such a great way to make every map come alive. I mean, even if... I'm, I'm sure I'm going to run into it again on a different map, a different random map. But it's a way to make the map... Give the map some characters, a place for everyone to... I'm assuming Magnar had the same thing. He could have probably run in there and done it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put a city right there, just like I put a city right there. So get units in there and feed them in pretty quickly. Um, so could you talk a bit about plugging in these large spaces, these wildland quest events? Because there's quite a few of them in there, aren't there? Yeah, there are. There's uh, 12 or 13 different ones that are uh, completely designed areas. I'll, I'll, many of them have very some of the most powerful creatures in the game are unique to those wildland areas. Um, it, it, we are embracing a little bit of that randomness that we talked about before. We talk about the good and bad of it. Every game is very different, and this is this could be a big piece of it too, where you know you run across the borders of. Um, the scrap lands, like you mentioned, where there's all those 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 broken golems that are in there still fighting a war from from ages past. Um, there are uh, the burning lands with uh, Delon, the, the the pyre of man, who's this. I think Tom called him Firecrotch at one point because he has this glowing, burning. I hate that guy. I cannot stand that guy. He's so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but it, it adds into the the best items in the game. Uh, we have these, ma you know, all the magical items of diff varying power and variety um, are 
in those wildland areas. You get in there, you you clear some of those monsters, you you clear some of those layers, and you can get much more powerful items for your champions, and and as well as completing the quest. If you complete the quest for that area, it flips. It's it's initially a player an area where your player's zone of control can't even expand into. Um, and if you flip it, then it, it does become uh, an area that you can grow into as well as having really high essence yield. So you can put some of your best cities in there if you're able to, to go ahead and, and conquer it. But they're not easy and they're not intended to be early game. It's one of those things we want the player to see something. Yeah, I want the player to see something in his first hundred turns where he sees some area and he just thinks, oh, there is no way I'm going anywhere near that. That just looks like death incarnate. And but but he can build for it. He can he can play another hundred, two hundred turns and be building his army and be leveling up his champions and getting access to more and more powerful spells till he feels like he's ready to put an army together and march in and and challenge those elemental lords and claim that land for himself. Those wildlands, Derek, make me think of. I, I don't want this point to get lost because this is huge for me. And this is probably, I would say, my favorite bar none thing about Fallen Enchantress and what makes it one of, I, I think, I, I haven't played it enough to say something grandiose like, you know, it rivals Civilization Four or Imperialism Two, But the one thing about Fallen Enchantress that makes me think, hey, this game could be up there with those other classics for me is the pacing. Now, I, I want to briefly mention uh, there's an RTS called uh, Age of Empires 3, and one of the problems with an RTS is that when you first start playing, you're just building uh, your main city and you're waiting for resources to, to accumulate so you can make your army, and there's this mandatory downtime where you're like, okay, I'm waiting for the real game to start. Um, what Age of Empires 3 did is it gave you an explorer. And your explorer would run around the map and discover treasure. You get like beaver pelts or almond groves. You might rescue a villager or something like that. So they gave you this little bit of busy work with a lot of character and a little kind of reward drip feed if you engaged in that busy work. Um, and it helped the pacing a lot in Age of Empires 3. What I think you guys have done with Fallen Enchantress, which is one of the reasons it's so brilliant to me, is that the pacing is constantly giving me things to do. In a game like Civilization IV, early on, I'm just hitting in turn, in turn, in turn. I'm waiting on my granary to finish. And then uh, in turn, in turn, in turn, waiting for my shrine to finish. Um, the, the busy work, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but the, the busy work you do with your heroes keeps the early game, you know, Troy mentioned all those monsters that are that are opposing him, but the flip side of that coin is there are heroes you're recruiting and there's treasure out there and you're 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 doing this risk reward calculation of do I take on this encounter to level up my hero? Just as much as it's a wild, dangerous world, it's also full of opportunity. So whereas in Civilization Four I'm waiting on my granary to finish, here I'm making very important decisions to lay the foundation for how I develop my heroes in my cities. Similarly that pacing carries over into the part of the game where if I was playing Civilization IV and I didn't want to fight a bunch of wars against the AI factions, and that's how a lot of us play those games, is you just try to outdevelop the other civilizations. You know, war is messy and intricate and it bogs down the pacing. If you play Fallen Enchantress that way, that's fine because you still have this mid-level stuff to do with the wildlands, with the higher-level uh, monsters uh, and the quests. I constantly feel like there, there's stuff for me to do, and I, I am never, I am so reluctant to hit intern in this game because there are other things I always want to look at. Uh, there's always something that's going to happen next turn, and that's partly because of how many, how many of these RPG elements are in there and, and these wildland modules that get, that get dropped in there. Can I say something about the busy work, though, a piece of busy work that doesn't work for me at all? 
and that is having my sovereign running around collecting all of this loot and then having to get on the same tile as a captain as one of your other heroes so they can exchange stuff. Like, hey, I have like eight shields now. And meanwhile, my other heroes and another army somewhere else he has to trade with. Can we get rid of that little bit of busy work? Like have 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 some couriers send this to X city. It'll get there in five turns. Sounds like you're adding busy work. No, I think that's just how it was, Troy. I know he can do about that. Well, also Troy, those a lot of those things are are economic. Like you sell a lot of that stuff. A lot of that stuff is like how you make money. Yeah, I'm, yes, Tom. I know how to make money in the game, but I'm also saying if I have like five magic swords and dude over there in in Hopeville has none, I might want to be him to have them when he gets attacked by Magnar instead of you know selling them for money. I have to go to a city to sell it anyway. So I might as well go to a. I can't sell it out in the wild. I have to be in like in my own territory. In my own territory, I might as well go home and talk to the other dude. Um, but why have to have some courier, you know, run that stuff back and forth? Because you already have the heroes recuperating. You know, if it's recuperated for five turns, he'll be back later. When, hey, this sword will get to that city in five turns. The reason that we haven't, uh, that we've forced the player to get together to, to trade with other guys is, um, the fear is if, if we make that process really easy, what happens is players start sharing their... Their good loot. So right. for I a have battle, guys, like you want to you want to make sure your guy has the best sword for this next battle, right? Right, and you you tell players, well, you don't have to do don't ex, don't do that if that's not fun for you. But as soon as you build a mechanism in the game that makes it more efficient, you know, there's players and their players just like me that feel like, well, now I have to do that because I feel like if I'm not doing that, I'm not being optimal, and and it, it makes it not fun to uh, you know tr- try to go through this labor of passing things back and forth and everything. Now, we talked about putting gold costs on there or some other way to kind of control that or trying to put enough of a disincentive in there. Which like is really FedEx. What, yeah, exactly. I, I, really I, say num- I say try a number of turns. Try it. See if that changes player behavior. I think it would. I think if I had to wait five turns, I might not want to be sending that sword back and forth and not using it for like 15 turns. That sounds just like extra busy work. Mm, that sounds like something I have to track that I don't like. Yeah, that 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 solution. I don't know. I, I I do I do think it would be nice if you could just somehow just sort of like instant transfer it to another hero. But uh, honestly, I mean, my heroes are usually kind of walking around in, in a pack. It's like sharks and jets. Uh, I don't like to <laughs> I don't like to have them split up because uh, they got to be ready to dance battle. Um, so well, one of the things, though, Rob, where, where I do end up having to split my heroes up, and it, it really forces a tough choice, I don't know if this is documented, but your sovereign reduces unrest by 10%, and every other hero does by, by 5%, and then you can give them the administrator traits. I find myself doing that uh, that Master of Orion thing, where I have certain champions or heroes that I want to stay in town. You know, you stay here, you generate gold, you help unrest. Uh, so I have administrators as well as heroes, and, and I love that about the game, that it supports the bureaucrats as well as the, the adventurers. I feel we've all we've all tipped our hands here about sort of where we're coming down with this game, but I haven't gotten a sense for for where Bruce stands uh, in relation to Fallen Enchantress. Oh, I I think I'm pretty much on the same lines. You guys I haven't had I think as much of a chance to play it as Tom has because I haven't gone through all the factions and everything. But uh, you know, I, I you were saying, Rob, I think that the uh, the design elements of of Fallen Enchantress seem to hang together much better than. Uh, than elemental. I don't really remember elemental that well. Um, 
and uh, so I, I also can't make those uh, those comparisons. But I think that the, what the design elements that do exist in Full Enchantress uh, hang together extremely well, and that's I mean that's got to be down to Derek since it sounds like the uh, the whole um, reason that he was brought in was try it was try to get that to, to happen. So I think I mean I, I think that succeeded. Um, the 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 things that I don't like about Fallen Enchantress are mostly aesthetic. Um, I'm not a big fan of the art design. Um, doesn't it's a little too um, I don't know. Th- there's this <clears throat> there's this um, tendency for 3D kind of uh, uh, maps. Now I, I just you know what I, I really kind of miss the old uh, 2D sprites and maps, but that's never coming back. So there's, that's <laughs> might as well. Plus you're just you're mad. You just can't you can't be an elf. I bet. It's you know it's true, and also uh, the uh, the um, the backstory. I'm not sure how well researched that is. I think you guys need to spend some extra time and find out what actually really happened in the world of Fallen Enchantress. But or the, you could just no. you could just buy Brad Wardell's book. You learn yeah, all you know, about exactly. that. Exactly. Oh, God. No. Oh, anyway. I will say. I do want to say. I this is this is a, like I feel awful bagging on Brad's poor book. But but one of the things that Fallen Enchantress has done for me that that uh, that Elemental never did is I'm playing the game and I find myself wondering. Hey, so what's the deal with these Magnar guys? Who are they after all? Who's this Magnar guy leader? What's his deal? What's his beef? I find myself actually curious when I like a game, when I like the mechanics. I find myself wanting to to read what's the what's the rationale behind these dudes. The uh, the, 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 the manual for Fallen Enchantress is excellent in that regard. It lays out all the factions yeah. very neatly. It's very well written. It's very clear. Um, I've had to go back to it to find out. I, I couldn't find where the global spells were. For some reason, it's just blanking. Where the hell are the global strategic spells? Had to go to the mail to find, oh, they're down there. Of course they are. The last place for me I ever look. Um, but well, the, and even the, Troy, says, the, uh, the Hidgery Didgery Do, or whatever you call that, I can never say it. Right. That that thing as well, which is like separate from the manual. Uh, and they just released yeah. a, a PDF with all the spells listed. So, yeah, they're doing yeah, a great I, job I, with the documentation, I, I think. It, it, it's a, I, I can't use a Hiragam and Eminem on. It's just, I never know where to find anything. Cause so, so Derek, but because the manual's you're great. the. Because you're the authority, would you pronounce the name of what this thing is called? I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. It is the Hair Geminon. Do, 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 Geminon? Do. <laughs> Geminon. <laughs> Geminon. Uh, can, I, can I ask what uh, – now that it's out and now that there's people like us sort of banging on it and, and asking for features, like, like Troy mentioned, the being annoyed at having to trade things, I can only imagine like, – like I imagine – uh, some people are probably kvetching about the fact that they can't build roads where they want, you know, that that happens automatically based on what text you have. Um, but, but what sort of uh, complaints or, or initial feedback are you guys looking at at this point in terms of going forward? Like, like what things do you feel are, are, are worth being addressed? Yeah, just to give you a feel for how th- there's a, a, so much crazy stuff in Fallen Enchantress. There is there are two champions in the game. There's an empire and a kingdom one that can both build roads. So oh, if, you, if you, you get those champions, oh. you can you can just go and build roads wherever you want to. So it's just one of those little things we we throw in to make the guys more unique. And uh, but we we are looking through feedback. A lot of players are playing. Our, our focus is on uh, you know fixing any bugs out there, any balance concerns. Uh, we we did a lot of work leading up to release. Um, one of the advantages we had with Fallen Enchantress is all of those people that got it for free got it into the beta for free as well. So we had just a ton of feedback from the community, and they helped us get the balance item sorted. Now, if you'd played as much as a month before release, you could uh, have gone across to Goody Hut and gotten a sword that, that you probably shouldn't have for the first 200, 300 turns of the game and really made training units 
uh, not that appealing because, you know, hey, my champion does more damage than, than you know, five of these armies that I just produced, so I'm just going to use him. Um, so we, we're getting all those things back in line, but there's still balance work to happen, you know, things up, you know, a couple more points here, a couple less points there really makes a big difference, uh, as well as looking for um, features that are coming in. One of the big pieces that we got back from the community was they wanted to be able to heal some of the injuries that happen on the champions. Um, and, and I was very leery no. to do it because I never wanted injuries to be just a, oh, if a champion dies in battle. Well, let me talk about the mechanic a little bit. If one of your champions dies in battle, he gets a random injury on him, which is a, a negative effect that lasts for the rest of the game. And if you have a champion that's died 10, 12 times, he, you look at his stats or you look at, at his picture in unit info and what you'll see is this, just this bar of all of these red, ugly icons showing, you know, he has, he's missing an eye and, and his, his knee is twisted and his foot is just gone. And, and you know, all these, these kind of ailments that he has. And player, I, I like that. And it's one of the things that kept players from just kind of throwing those. Well, I wonder if I can beat up those guys. Well, I'll throw my champions against them. Nope, uh, I, I can't. So I'll wait five turns and then I'll try again or I'll go somewhere else. I wanted them to care when they lost. So it definitely makes you do that. But players wanted some way to alleviate that too. So we, we, we made a potion which just cures one of the uh, a random injury off that guy. So if you have 15 of them and you do find one of these potions, they're fairly you would see a couple of them a game. I say they're common, but there's a lot of stuff in Fallen Enchantress. So even common items, you know, you, you see just a, a couple of them as you're out, you know, looting monster lairs and, and finding treasure chests out in the wild and things like that. So you, you're kind of careful with them and you choose where you want to use them. But if you do have some champion you really like and he's just got, you know, too beat up from all these bad effects, then, you know, you can give him a, one of those potions and, and let him get rid of some of those. So we, we do have things like that that we like adding in. We like, you know, kind of rounding, polishing off the edges of the game to, to make it better, we we rely on the community to help us find those areas. Yeah, one of my champions just had bad just had bad luck. I mean, she was never in the front line. She was an archer, so they always take her out. And she, by the end of the game, she was just one brutal, awful mess. I had to, had to retire her back to the city where she could administer. Exactly, her, and Troy, her. you should. You should answer to the consequences of your actions. You should be held accountable for that. Don't listen to the people that want those injuries taken off. They should they should deal with them. <laughs> well, it, 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 it reminded me of the, the, the evil of the auto-resolve button, how unfair auto-resolve Oh, well, that's what you get. Yeah, exactly. That's what you get. Well, there, okay, Troy. but I want to use <laughs> yeah, the auto-resolve button. Yeah, but, you know, we can't fight all these battles. Especially because I would argue that one thing I don't feel has been uh, improved all that much, and I don't find that interesting are the tactical battles, uh, if, I, oh, if I'm Oh, I couldn't disagree honest. more, Rob. Oh, go ahead. God. I want to hear really? what, so what, what's your beef with the tactical battles. Uh. Okay. Uh, well, basically, I, fi I find that I just don't, I, they don't, I don't have a lot of, there's not a lot of tactical variety uh, that, I'm, that I'm seeing in the battles. What, uh, it, it's sort of a descending order of, of what's going to determine the outcome of, of the battle. So, like, uh, one of the things that Fallen Enchantress has is uh, unit size, where you can have, uh, what is it, like a group and then a squad and then a company of, of a certain type of unit so basically each of the like you know you have six unit slots in your army and a group of archers would be like three archers and a squad would be like four and i think company is like five or six i, I don't remember but they fill the same size slot in your army so 
you know, the, the first thing that's going to happen is, you know, the, the bigger unit, you know, God is on the side of the big battalions, right? So, so that tends to be one factor in play, and then you've got the technology. And so I find each of these battles tends to fall into sort of a road pattern of uh, meat shields up front and ranged units and casters in the back, and, you know, you just, just tank it. Well, that doesn't bother me all that much. I mean, I, th- I mean, the fact that you'd have the meat shields in the front, that's why they're called meat shields. Um, but I, I do agree that there's still a whole lot of tactical variety in them. I mean, I play them more. They are, oh, you guys they, are killing they, me. They, <laughs> they, 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 I will say they, they are improved uh, from Elemental quite a bit. Um, they move a lot faster, well, for one thing. Let's not even use Elementals. I mean, look, at, okay. compared to something like Master of Orion or Master of Magic. I mean, I, 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 compared to, to games that have great tactical variety in their battles, I would easily put Fallen Enchantress up there with those. Really, may, may, uh, may, may, may make the case because I don't. I don't. Okay, sure, I, I sure. Wouldn't, I wouldn't so, put it up that high. So I, I think part of the, the tactical variety you see, and it's it's immense. I love it. It's what I mentioned before about how I love how the tactical game feeds into the strategic game. You know, Rob, you mentioned you you correctly brought up how huge an element it is that that unit size. As you were going up the tech tree, increasing the size of units. You know, initially three militias in a stack, big deal. Who cares? Once you get that to five, can it go to six? But whatever the largest size is. It, it's, it gradually swings the balance. It makes this kind of arms race about who can bring a larger army into the battle. And that starts to trump things, or at least dramatically affect the balancing of how powerful your heroes are. You know, it, it, it sort of lets you, if you haven't adventured a lot and worked uh, a hero up to high level, or if you're not doing a powerful magic system, you can push your way up the military tree and compensate for that by bringing more mundane units onto the field. Furthermore, how you build those units, it's where that DIY, that do-it-yourself unit builder comes into play. How you build those units is hugely important and also hugely influenced by the strategic game. Do you have the, the material, the, uh, what is it? Is it iron? The metal. Do you have the metal to make heavily armored units? Or the crystal Do for you, enchanted stuff. Or the crystal, exactly, for enchantments or for magic casters. I mean, as I, Magnar, I agree, once, Tom, I, but you're cheating. That's not a tactical issue. That's a strategic issue. Well, no, no. What I'm saying is, though, the, the strategic decisions feed into the tactical game. Once you once you make the right strategic decisions, it dramatically alters how you're playing the tactical game. And the magic system, by the way, is a huge part of that. Do you have enough mana? Or do you have high enough level heroes to unlock the better spells. Uh, the, how do you how you manage the initiative game, for instance? It reminds me a lot, I play a lot of SRPGs, those Japanese RPGs that are just tactical battles, and they have this list of all the characters in the battle, and how many times the character appears in that list, and how early in the list is a factor of its speed, or initiative in, in Fallen Enchantress. Uh, you know, that's a huge tactical thing, how you manage that initiative score. Um, Zones of control, for instance. I love that there, Bruce would love this. There are zones of control in Fallen Enchantress's tactical battle. You don't need a straight line of meat shields. You just need enough to where you force a unit to stop when it's trying to rush your uh, ranged units. Um, I, I, ju- I just couldn't disagree more about there not being enough tactical variety. The faction you play, the conditions you're in, how you're managing the strategic game, I don't, the, the, to the, me... The, the, 
the fact that I take out many different types of armies using the same tactics, that I've, that means that there's not a lot of variety. It means that I'm not adjusting my tactics, whether it is a squad of ogres or darklings or Magnar's finest troops. The fact that I'm taking them out the exact same way with the exact same army doesn't speak to tactical variety. I mean, it may, may mean that I've just built a super army because I'm so good at the strategic level. That's a strategic level issue. It's not a tactical game. That's a strategic game. Yeah, I'd also wonder how much of um, how many challenges you would have you could beat. For example, ogres have their their weaknesses. They are they have really poor spell resistance. There is uh, many damage types. There's cutting, blunt, and pierce weapons, and many monsters. There are very few monsters in the game that are they're equal to all of them. Many of them have a, a strong vulnerability or a strong resistance in one of those areas. So it's really about kind of trying to figure out what's the best unit to attack which guy. Um, but with that being said, you try to give a lot of spell abilities in there and special abilities for units. Um, Crax's ability to fortify their top and let people come to them. It's really cool. Um, Yithril has an ability to, to berserk their units, which does a point of damage every turn, but increases their attack. Very handy in the right situations. Um, but all that being said, we are a 4X game. The, the, the main game that we want the players thinking about and controlling is at that 4X level. It is at all the things Tom's talking about. It's unit design, it's production, it's bringing those armies together. And we don't want players to be able to ignore that level of the game by being really good at the tactical level um, or feel like, you know, I, I, you know, I could build these big armies, these groups of five, these groups of seven, I could, I could train up these high level units, I could bring in nine, you know, uh, nine different units into this battle, and I could have my warg riders and, and the, 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 the iron golems that I built, or I could just, you know, but, but it doesn't really matter, because tactically, I can beat this with the right guy. So it's trying to find a little bit of a balance there. We are trying to put our feet into two different areas. And that's always hard to do when you're a race car game and a gun shooter game, you know, something's going to be non optimal. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, uh, well, I just good, think of good point. I'm sorry, go ahead. Tom. No, no, you go ahead, Bruce. Yeah. Well, I was just going to throw in Tom mentioned to Master of Orion and, and the original Master of Orion, uh, I thought, uh, was a, the perfect example of how you could, uh, you know, do a whole. You, you could decide that you're gonna you're going to build, uh, you know, ships that are certain, you know, have certain abilities, and you had these little tricks and sort of gimmicks that you could use to defeat, uh, you know, it, it, to defeat, um, you know, enemies that were more powerful had had uh, you know bigger industry because you had all these uh, you know sort of tricks of the of the game mechanics to use against them, and it, it sounds to me like. Like Derek is saying that uh, basically there was a design decision made to not allow people to do that, which I think is fair enough. Well, and also, Derek, you've said, I hope this isn't unfair to bring this up, but you mentioned on quarter to three that one of the things that you had thought about if you had three more months is adding things to the tactical battle like terrain types or weather or sieges. And, and to the point that I think, uh, Troy and Rob are trying to make is there, there's a very, there's a, there's a nice simplicity to the tactical battle and that it's just a, a flat out, you know, it's a chessboard. Some of the, some of the spaces might be obstructed, but it's just a, a bare arena where you bang whatever you've made in the strategic game against whatever the AI is bringing to bear. And there's not a lot of stuff about, you know, terrain types and weather and, and other things that you'd, you'd mentioned might have been in a game if you had pushed that to tactical level further. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I, 
don't, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of terrain modifiers because people tend to find the best tile and go stand on there and then expect the AI to run up to them. And from an AI perspective, even though that's a dumb thing for the AI to do, we also don't want to draw the tactical battle out for five, ten. That's not fun for you to be sitting and staring at him. He's staring at you. So, <laughs> so we would have him run up to you and, and die and then the players feel like the AI is stupid. Um, but, but I would love to, if yeah, the question was, if you had three more months, what would you do? I said, I'm really happy with it. But... You know, if, if you did say, hey, you got three months, go do something, it would be um, random uh, uh, effects on battle. So when you start the battle, there are things like high winds, which means all the archers' accuracy is halved, or it's a magical dead area, so your spells, uh, you can't use magic, or spell costs are, you know, four times their normal amounts, or spells are free in this area because it's a, you know, a very magical rich area. So just to get to the point you're talking about where you jump into a battle and you're like, holy crap, I gotta adjust everything that I normally do, and I have to work around this this new opportunity or constraint. So I think that could be fun too. Uh, Derek, who can we thank for uh, allowing a customizable hot bar for each hero at the bottom of the tactical battles? <laughs> um, I adore that feature. I just want to say. <laughs> I, I think Paul, Bo our art director, had always loved that and had mocked that up uh, as late uh, back before I even started with uh, Stardock uh, for War of Magic stuff, and he had always kind of liked that idea too of having those in there. And it is it is really cool to be able to throw your spells down there. I worry a little bit about players don't understand how to use that, you know, how to apply their spells and how to put them in there. Maybe a little hard to grasp at the first time, but once you get it, yeah, it's I, I, I it love is, having it there too. It's kind of a power user thing, but it's so important. Like later in the game, when 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 you have more powerful heroes, it's like, oh yeah, these are the spells that I want this guy to mainly use. Uh, it's just a great way to sort of make the game more manageable as it goes on and it's, it's like playing an mmo in a way <laughs> uh i also did want to mention that uh to your point earlier tom about customization and uh you know the various uh, ways you can upgrade your units this is something i think that fallen enchantress uh really nailed that you know i kind of enjoyed just the ability to sort of screw around and redesign units in elemental but I never really felt like necessarily i needed to like it was sort of basic where i just you know slap whatever the latest crap was on a unit and uh you know just build it and let it go uh what i do feel is happening in fallen enchantress much more is now i i'm really competing for map resources because uh, you know an iron mine or a crystal or a crystal mine uh, is a huge strategic advantage if you can you know if you can bank enough crystal uh, well I mean for one it opens up some really cool late game uh, victory conditions makes that much easier but I find maybe even more importantly for me sometimes is that you know, I can suddenly, you know, field an army of guys wielding, you know, like flaming battle axes. And so they're just going to start like, you know, carving a path uh, through the enemy. And, and so it, it sort of, there is, I think, this tendency in Forex games to maybe, you know, be a little too node to node where you capture the city and its attendant resources come with you, but really the prize is the city. Uh, in, in Fallen Enchantress, I, I covet, uh, you know, little little resource nodes on the map. I, you know, I want those really badly, and I will go to war over them uh, because I simply can't let, uh, you know, my, my good neighbor and friend have access to that, you know, pair of crystal mines. Uh, I can't, you know, I can't let Tarth uh, have that no matter how, how simpatico we might be. Well, I want to piggyback on your point, Rob, because one thing that they've also done with that is that even if I'm not making magic 
user type units, even if I'm not really up on the, the magic tech tree and I don't have a use for crystal uh, for my units, crystal can be used to trade. You know, this is one thing that, that uh, Stardock did with Galactic Civilizations is because it was single player only, they had this very gamey diplomacy model where if I wanted this tech from this guy, I could just sort of pay a certain amount of money. I could see exactly how much I had to pay to buy it. They even added a trait. This was in Galactic Civilization. I think it was called Influence there as well. There's a resource in Fallen Enchantress called Influence. And it's basically just diplomacy cash. You know, you spend it to get something you want from the AI, whereas another player, a human player, couldn't care less about this. But it's a gamey thing that lets you play against the AI. It's the same with Crystal and metal horses and wargs. If I don't need those things, they're great to have because they're 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 leverage that I can use diplomatically. Uh, so even if I don't need crystal, I want those crystal mines. There's always something I can spend my resources on, even if it's just to game the diplomacy game. Uh, I love that about Fallen Enchantress. And one of my favorite things, that, another thing we stole from Galactic Civilizations along that point is um, the outposts that we have oh, as, yeah. are stolen. They're, they're star bases from, from Galsiv, but you do, you see those resources out there and you want all those resources. But like I mentioned earlier, we don't want the player to have to manage 12 cities, 15 cities. So you can drop an outpost there and get zone of control and outposts have a couple upgrades on them where you can, you know, um, give attack bonuses to all your allied units there, give movement bonuses to all allied units within that outpost zone of control uh, and and you can grab and, and grab land and grab resources without having to put down city two three four five and uh, uh, really allowed us to grow our empires while allowing players to you know what if he just wanted two or three cities and that was going to be the hub of his empire then he could do that and even with the outposts, and this is like star bases, it's not just to jockey for position. You can put them around your empire to get those defensive bonuses or even to just add growth to a city. Uh, you, you know, they're valuable. They're, they're like almost do-it-yourself resource nodes on the map in a way. Yeah. Yeah, and we give unrest penalties to any cities that aren't connected to your empire through uh, zone of control. So uh, a lot of times you want to use your outpost just to link up your connect your empire yep. all together into one contiguous country, and uh, those unrest penalties go away. That's something I really enjoy about this game is that distance is a factor in this game in a way it's not in, in a lot of others. And so I find that, you know, it's it's interesting. I find that, like, in a lot of other 4Xs, I can just sort of create the Death Ball army, you know, Stack of Doom, whatever you want to call it, and just sort of send it out there. And distance itself isn't really an obstacle. This army is going to sort of steamroll over whatever it encounters, and I don't need to worry so much about maybe laying the groundwork, uh, you know, f for an offensive or, or, or to expand my empire into a new city. It's, it's rare these concerns uh, come up, certainly past the early game. In Fallen Enchantress, I always feel... Like, the world is maybe bigger than is easier to govern. It always feels like there's a there's a wildness to it and a danger to it. And these, you know, these, these outposts and these cities create these little pockets of civilization and safety and awareness. And the fog of war, anything could be out there. And so throughout, throughout my game, uh, I find just sort of extending sort of the light of civilization, as it were, the zone of control and everything. That in itself is, is really crucial for, you know, accomplishing just about anything I want to do in this game. It's crucial for making sure that my pioneers can go and, and settle a new location without getting, you know, mugged halfway there. It's crucial to have, you know, uh, I think there's an uh, outpost upgrade that lets you 
units within its zone of control get a defensive bonus and that can be crucial to have on ho hostile border having units you know fighting underneath the shadow of that that outpost and and so i i really i really do enjoy how suddenly just sort of the control of territory and the and the sprawl of, of an empire is a factor here in a way that you know i i don't see very often i guess you know what i what i would think what you know to to pull a tom here and reference something else uh it reminds me a lot of kohan in, in a lot of really nice ways. I would be interested in hearing specifics. Like, I, I, I see that, Rob, but how, how is it uh, reminding you of Kohan? You know, I feel like, I, I feel like, you know, in, in Kohan, just getting somewhere, just bringing your army in fighting shape to the battlefield, uh, you know, is an adventure. Just finding a new place to set up shop and start, you know, start your next bid, bid for control of a crucial portion of the map you know there there's a lot of groundwork laying in co in kohan whereas i i feel like a lot of strategy games it's very you know just build the units send them out you know job done just send the settler out plunk a building down it's done you're ready to move on to the next thing here i find there's sort of a really nice sort of two-stage process where i first have to like you know plan for plan for my next round of expansion Build some stuff to allow me to do that, and then I can advance to the next round of next round of my goals. It's a real manifest destiny feel to it. That you know, there's this wilderness out there you have to tame, and you have to tame it before you can civilize it. It's not like like you say, you can't just send a settler out there and he'll do it on his own. You have to send out the cavalry, and you have to send out the explorers and the pioneers to find out what's out there. You have to find the best route. And yeah, plop down outpost to make sure there's a safe path back and forth. It really does have this post apocalyptic edge of a wilderness feel to it that does require thinking about strategic expansion in a completely, in a way that not very many 4Xs do. I mean, some have, but really not quite in this way where the wilderness is out to kill you. And it is, it is roaming around. You can't just walk around them. They are everywhere. Um, and you don't know where the next thing is. So it does have this... You have to prepare to expand, and preparing isn't just waiting 20 turns for the settler. It is making sure your sovereign has another hero with him and maybe a couple of militia to take out some darklings and whatever else pops up along the way. Maybe check out some goods while you're there, but don't lose track of the primary objective, which is find a place to settle some dudes uh, and find out the, where the rich spots are. It really does have this really nice feel of danger and foreboding I'm when you're uh, expanding yeah when you're oh, expanding yeah when, the ex when you're expanding your your borders uh, one of the things they do is if you expand your borders into a lair where a powerful monster sits and every now and then it'll okay. spawn less powerful versions it'll roam around but if you expand into a lair it will pop that big powerful monster loose and then he'll be become a wandering monster uh, and so i love this idea of okay i've got this city here do i dare to build a monument and push my borders out because it's just going to wake that dude up, and then he's going to run around and make it harder for me to explore. Uh, I, I love that tough decision. I was just going to say, we, we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on, I, I think, the perennial concern with games like this. Uh, artificial intelligence. How have you guys been finding the quality of opponent? Meh. I'm... Meh? <laughs> Here's the cat. That's my cat yeah, yelling at me. Oh, yeah, that, that was not cat? my cat. Yeah, for once that was not my cat. No, I couldn't disagree more with the man. I mean, I think they've done, uh, again, just the fact that the, the tactical battles, the AI doesn't let you, you know, it will move up 
to where it's trying to get into position where it can walk up and attack in one turn. The fact that, that the AI thinks enough about that part of the tactical battle, I love. I see it use spells. I'm happy with that. I've, I've seen it act very aggressively against my empires. I mean, if you want to say meh, you have to say meh at pretty much every single strategy game ever made. But if you look at it in the context, but if you look at it in the context yeah. of like ha- other strategy games, and I think of games like Civilization V, uh, I, I, I think they've done a great job. It's, it's aggressive, even on the normal mode where it doesn't get any, uh, any, or no, challenging, it doesn't get any bonuses. Uh, but on, on challenging mode, uh, I, I routinely lose because I can't keep up with a power curve or because, and, and even when I'm sort of keeping up with the power curve, I feel like it's pushing against me. Uh, I'm, I'm real happy with the AI. Um, I, I find it really hard to judge how well the AI is doing. I've only put in about 10 or 12 hours, and I still don't have a, quite a good feel for how good the game is, the AI is. I mean, yes, the AI is beating me in many of the games, but a lot of that is because I can't find my opponent until, because I have to walk through hell and back uh, to expand my empire. I don't find them until they're, I, they're in better land, they're further off. By the time I run into them, They've been trading and killing each other, and there's a superpower over there. So that's so. With that, here's in AI. Let me finish, Tom. Um, but in in the tactical battles, you know, the AIs. I think it it moves up in the first turn because the maps are a lot smaller than they used to be. But you're right. The, it it is casting spells at the strategic level, which is great. Its army composition is still leaves a little bit to be desired. Uh, is it as good as the best AIs in many 4X games? I don't think it's as good as where Civ Five is now. It's certainly it's certainly better than oh, where Civ Five. Yeah, certainly, it's certainly it's certainly better than where Civ Five was at, at, at release. Um, Civ Five yeah, is still uh, wretched, though. I mean, I we'll, we'll, we yeah, should have well, a debate on that, Troy. We're not going to be debating that because uh, uh, Civ, the Civ Five AI. I mean, I, this blows it out of the water because, and you can sort of tell the design and the AI development in this are, are they work hand in hand. You know, the AI can play the game as it's designed, and, and that right there, that's the first stage for me of being a good AI and and, and Civ 5 kind of yeah. missed that boat so they're having not, to play catch I'm up. not seeing any diplomatic game I'm not seeing any real serious diplomatic game from the AI so that's an issue for me I mean you can't say the AI is playing by the same rules understanding it if it's not playing the diplomatic game at all when it's coming to me saying please help me and being beaten up on and it won't take anything I'm offering to help uh, and it rejects that. I think that's an, that's an issue. Well, I mean, it's a single player game, and the, like I said, the diplomacy yeah. thing is is gamey. You know, it's made to where these, you know, these AI factions are, are they can be resources, uh, and when they're getting beaten, you know, you can you can definitely take advantage of that. Like like I said, with the whole influence resource, that's all about gaming that diplomacy thing. Um, but I don't know. You know, that's something that uh, as people play it and bang on it and yeah, because discover... I said I'm only ten to twelve hours in, so I still have a lot. But right right now, I'm not sold on it being this amazing. You've had more experience with it, so maybe you're right, but um, I'm still not quite where I'm ready to embrace it as, Wait. you know, a credit. Rob, what, Rob, Bruce, what are you feeling here? I'm not, I'm not going to be, I'm not competent to, to uh, comment on the AI since uh, I, I, it keeps beating me, but I haven't put enough time to actually get, uh, get the game to a point where I can, I think it's, it's fine for now. I mean, there's so many games where uh, the the AI can be uh, beaten by tricks. Um, I don't know if this game gets to that point yet. I think it's it's so hard to judge an AI. Um, you know, the number of AIs that I feel really play their games well can be counted basically on one hand, like the Imperialism series. Um, just 
it's it's a really high high bar to to hold. I mean, Master of Magic was is such a beloved game, yet the AI was some of the worst AI I've ever seen. So I don't know, and 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 the people would disagree with me. Some people would say, oh, you know, they, the the AI in that game, you know, that beat me all the time. So it's it, the the question of the AI is is a really hard one for me to answer. I mean, I'm not I'm not convinced that if the AI was better, it would actually be a be a better game than it is. I mean, this isn't a killer for me if the AI isn't you know a, a genius. But it does mean that I have to restrain myself from going to tactical battles all the time and, and cleaning its clock. Well, here, here's what I would suggest, though. If, if you have reservations about the AI or if you want to see it in action, I mean, one of the best ways to determine whether an AI is good is how often will you see it doing stupid things. And a way you can check that is just start a game, two-player map, small enough to where you're, you and the other guy can keep an eye on each other, and just watch the AI grow. Watch how aggressive it is or isn't with you. Uh, I, I think this game bears up under that kind of scrutiny. Now, you will see, like, I do notice... Plenty of times where the AI could have, like, taken an outpost and it didn't, and I don't know if that's, like, an intentional thing. Uh, but for the most part, this is an AI that isn't doing stupid things. And, well, and that is, right there – It is doing stupid things because it is still sometimes sending its sovereign out unescorted. Yeah, I'm actually seeing uh, uh, the the most consistent, like, AI issue I've, I've probably seen would have to be – it's the way it will sort of scatter its forces when it really should have them in a, in a big stack. Uh, I have I have sort of mugged the uh, sovereign a few too many times for comfort, right. where it's like, oh, the sovereign's here with a group of spearmen, and then like six tiles away, there's a large army with no leader. Uh, and so those two things, like these are two things that should go together, uh, and and they're, and they're just not. So that's that I do find is is a little disappointing that uh, once you know once you're at war, I'm actually much more scared of uh, the 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 monsters on the landscape uh, than I am of any uh, of any enemy enemy in the field. Yeah, from a from a design side, we had some uh, challenges there with uh, with. T tuning the AI back a little bit. Initially, the AI was like cockroaches scouring the land. It grabbed every goody hut. Uh, it it you know took everything that it could find. If it could beat that monster, you know it got that monster and cleared that layer. And the problem with that was because you know, we talk about we want tough AI, we want AI that plays like a human player. But at the end of the day, that's not the goal. The goal really is fun for the for the players. So so I asked Brad, you know, tune that AI back a little bit. Leave some of those goody huts. Otherwise. If you didn't get a goodie hut in the first 100, 150 turns, there was none left. You know, the AI would get all of them. So we leave some of those. So if you watch the AI play, sometimes you see it, oh, you know, it should have gotten that goodie hut there. It could have beat that monster. It should have went out there and, and got that monster and got the XP for it and the loot for it. And we leave them be. So so there's a delicate balance that, that we try to, to play here. Not to say that the AI is, is perfect and does everything great, um, but some of those flaws that you see in the AI play are intentional ones too so it's always a hard line for us to try to and, and the to, the, to the game's credit, too, you guys don't overly rely on economic advantages for the AI. I mean, I get the sense that the priority for the AI in Fallen Enchantress is to make it play by the same rules and the same limitations as the human player. And I don't doubt there are ways that that's tweaked. But for the most part, I don't get the sense that, hey, the AI is playing a completely different game from me. This isn't fair. Uh, 
That's right. The AI isn't getting attack bonuses on its units. It isn't getting uh, infinite mana to, for its spell casting. You know, it's still dealing with the same spell and the mana pool that that human players do, and trying to make those decisions on should I stone skin in this battle or save it so I can fireball on the next. And and those are decisions that are really hard for an AI because it doesn't you know know to plan ahead for it. And and human players are typically a little more better at that balancing act. But but it does play under those restrictions. And and that's also hugely important when I'm looking at how to deal with the AI. You know, if I cast those negative spells on its cities, I want to know that it's going to suffer from the effects of those. Uh, and I, I feel, I, you know, I, I feel confident that in Fallen Enchantress, yes, indeed, if I'm going to waste the mana to hit an AI city, it's going to suffer the impact. Uh, and I don't think that's the case in things like Civ 4, Civ 5, uh, and a lot of other strategy games. A word about the diplomacy, and it's not, it's not just this game, but I find myself less and less uh, sort of happy with... Uh, the, the sort of diplomacy model at, at work here, where you where you sort of where you're sort of uh, bartering with. There's so many things you can barter with. There are so many numbers you're kicking around. Like you know, I've got 40 warfare knowledge to share with you, and you know, you, you start like you know, I'll give you how many how many crystal for some knowledge and all this stuff. But I do find that what what that leads to is I actually get. The way I, the, what that ends up making me do as a player, though, is I start like getting really obsessive about like what's the, you know, what's the best offer I can make here? What's the most I can get for, you know, giving the least? And I actually get like in any in any trading system that that operates this way, I, I find that there's a lot of fine tuning offers where I'm just sort of like, okay, you know, add one more, you know, take one away, add ten more, you know, take two away, stuff like that. Uh, and I do find that it makes diplomacy sort of this, um, you know, kind of frustrating guessing game, I guess I'd say, where it's like, look, what, what's the offer you're going to say yes to? And well, it's I always displayed, isn't it, Rob? I mean, it's a numerical. That's why I say the diplomacy is gamey, is there's always a numerical value for any offer. And all you got to do is throw a few gold pieces in there and you watch the counter. And as soon as it reaches the value of the other side of the offer, the AI will take it. it it's really gamey, but I feel it avoids that guessing game. That's a big problem in, in some, like in Civ, for instance. But I, no, because I could swear I had a session like just before the show, and this is this is where I, this is where I, I noticed that I, maybe I maybe I misread something. But so it was it was someone I'm on good relations with. Mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, it was Brienne of Tarth, and my <laughs> did I screw this up? Like he's that guy that we all know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like, I like you Rob, Brienne, right? From the block. Yeah, Rob is name dropping different factions that he's buddies with. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're super tight. Uh, she helped me move my couch. Um, but so, so we were we we did have that sort of uh, friendly relationship, and so this was a case where uh, actually uh, she ended up accepting an offer that was, I think, lower, like lower than the perceived, uh, I want to say she ended up accepting a value, an offer, uh, where basically she was receiving less in perceived value uh, than I was oh. giving. Well, I could be mistaken then, but I always thought, because even if you want like a trade treaty, I love this, uh, it tells you how much the AI is going to charge you, basically, and it's a straight-up numerical value. But So, so Derek, Derek, is did that, I hallucinate is this? No, Tom, there you're what? right. That's not the intention. If there was something there that sounds like it may have been a bug, the, the intention yeah. is to avoid all of that a little bit more now try, now try, now try that I've seen done in a couple different games and to just to say, listen, this is how much they value this thing that you're asking for. you got to you know, make up that amount on your side to make them accept the deal. 
And that's straight out of Gal Siv, by the way. You know, that was one of my favorite things about Gal Siv is, uh, is just, you know, it's a game. It's, it's, it's like, it's like looking at combat values. Uh, diplomacy is the same kind of system. It, it's just as elegant and just as numbers based. Uh, well, the other thing I was going to say is that I do feel like a lot of other AI leaders also tend to, uh, have like crazy, you know, they really overvalue their own position, and it's you know, and it's kind of frustrating to have a diplomacy system where uh, it can be very hard sometimes to get people to play ball with you. In some ways, I do like that. Like, if you're a kingdom, uh, which is sort of like you know the guys in the white hats, and you know you're dealing with empires, the the dudes in the black hats. Um, you know, if if you're on if you're on one side of that divide and they're on the other, it's going to be very hard to do business together. I do kind of like that that creates this sort of tension where it's like, "Ooh, this is going to be you know this is a bad border to have," but right. it does also create this diplomacy system where it's like, you know, I'm just kind of shrugging my shoulders, like, "Come on, dude, really? Like, you're really going to hold me up for like ten more crystal here?" Well, isn't that, for for instance, like what influence is for? You know, influence is pretty much worthless. There are some things I think that you need influence to build. But for the most part, influence is a resource that you earn and you build specific things or you play Capitar. You know, there's ways to get influence uh, to manage those those crazy expectations from the AI sometimes. The idea being that, you know, what it takes to be a good diplomat is different from what it takes to be a good magician or a good warrior. Um, but you're, you're right, Rob. Like some That's of those yeah, and some of those things they seem crazy unfair, but that's where you know that's where you get an advantage from having influence. I think there's also a lot of uh, the, the, there's a lot of factors that play into your diplomatic relations with them. So if you look in your foreign relations screen, you'll see a lot of modifiers going each each way, and it's and it could be you know the AI can be kind of picky about some little things where it says you know what I've been keeping telling you get out of my land and and you know I'm I'm mad at you for it and you're suffering a penalty there or it could be you know what we have a trade treaty together we have a research treaty together and uh, you know just a lot of very favorite you know we're both kingdom we're both together against a common enemy uh, and, and you know a lot of factors that you kind of have to grow those friendly relationships if you have somebody who values you very highly then you have to manage that relationship to make it something that you can use in game and i love by the way that that is presented i mean one of the things i know you guys work really hard on derek is showing the player what modifiers go into what numbers you know why is this a six and not a seven and not a five you know why does the ai not like me why uh, am i not faring well in this battle uh, i love the tooltips you know why is this city making this much production uh, i just love sitting down mousing over tooltips seeing the math click into place and it just feels very clear and very elegant in a way that a lot of Stardock's other games haven't really pulled that off as well. There's a lot of like voodoo in some of the other games, but this has that very elegant Sid Meier-y, Civ kind of feel to, to the math, which I just love about it. And I love how above board all that is. Yeah, Toby Sarnelli is our associate, is the associate producer on the game. He's also the guy that put together the the manual, the the, the non-art piece of the manual. He did the writing stuff for it, and he uh, worked in the marketing department at Stardock for a while and came over to be associate producer. So he has a, an incredibly good grasp on all the UI stuff. So before I ever send anything to programmers or for artists to make UI or for programmers to code in features, it always goes to Toby first. And he jumps in Photoshop and he shows exactly what it will look like. So when the programmer gets it, they see exactly what the screen should happen. And he went through all of uh, the tooltips and made all of them icon where the icons would be placed, what everything would look like, and just it made an amazing difference to the game uh, when those were put in. All right, so uh, I should probably break in here because I believe the uh, World Series is uh, starting tonight, is it not? Uh, game three, go Giants. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you guys in your basketball games, good lord. Yes, yeah, we we have to we have to cut it here for the uh, sports ball tournament. Uh, so because I know that Troy is uh, dying to get out there and drink some beer and, and uh, watch a ball game. I've been drinking all night. I'm fine, beer wise. <laughs> okay, well you're you're not fine baseball wise though. That explains why I know nothing about Fallen Enchantress apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so on that note, we're, we're, uh, you know nothing, Troy Goodfellow. Yes. Uh, we're going to leave off our discussion uh, of Fallen Enchantress. Uh, you know, just one last, uh, you know, quick, quick survey of the room, I guess, uh, not counting Derek. But you know, where, where, what's our temperature on this game? Actually, Rob, before we before we go there, can I talk about one more thing of the of the game that I'm I wanted to highlight? Uh, yeah, go for it. Uh, just a- as we talk through it, there's a lot. Uh, one of the, my favorite things in the game uh, doesn't come in the first couple hours. I love the fact that you have to play. Uh, as you play the game, as you put in 10, 20, 30 hours, there's still new things that the players uh, are uncovering. And a lot of the things we've been talking about, as, as I'm hearing them, I'm kind of thinking through, oh, actually, that's, there's ways around that, there's ways around that, there's ways around that. And I love when players put those connections together. One of the examples is you were talking earlier about uh, this, the size of the map and the and the, the physical distance. Well, if you're Paradin, there's a spell called um, Cloud Walk, which allows you to teleport an army from one area to another within your zone of control. Um, Paradin has the ability to drop their magical outposts, which ex- extend your control anywhere they want to. Um, so if you combine those two features together, you know, as players are playing, they start to you ah. know, kind of think these things through and they realize, wait a second, I can bounce my armies where wherever I want if I'm playing Paradin. I drop an outpost right by the the uh, enemy city off, you know, uh, in the, the neutral lands close to him, and I'm, boom, teleport in my army with Cloud Walk, and, and there I have a new front that I can come at them from. Um, the Trog, uh, the Ithril Juggernauts have the ability to do splash damage. Anything they hit takes damage, as it normally would, but it also does damage to all units around them, allied and enemy alike. So after the players have been playing with that and fighting against those juggernauts for a while, they begin to realize, oh, wait a second, I can stick one of my units right between two juggernauts, or right between a juggernaut and other uh, enemy units, and when the juggernaut hits me, he does damage to his own allies. Uh, And then the next step of that is, wait a second, I can summon up, because I don't want to waste my own units with this, but, you know, if I summon up an ice elemental right beside that juggernaut and have him hit him that I can use that splash damage to my my own benefit so it's seeing those ties and those those relationships the way these abilities can be used together that that I always enjoy seeing and kind of discovering in the game you, you've now established that Paradin is overpowered between their <laughs> magical paradrops and being able to put essence in cities with scrying pools. You guys need to nerf that stuff right now. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, but, you know, you, Derek, you, you do have a right to be proud, and uh, you know, I can see why you want to bring that stuff up because you have done a, a hell of a job uh, sort of uncovering uh, sort of the potential that was in Elemental. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how much I like Fallen Enchanters, but I do know that I like it. I, you know, I need to play, I want, I want to play it a bit more. Uh, but, you know, it, it's clear to me that, like, as I play this, this is very much um, more along the lines of what I hope to be getting from Elemental. Uh, you know, do you guys, you know, where, where do you guys stand on that? I'm kind of with you, Rob. I, 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 I like it. I'm enjoying it. I'm not quite sure how much I like it. Uh, I'm not sure if I like it as much as Tom does. Uh, for one, Tom clearly going to give it a really glowing review, and it's the work is amazing uh, that's gone into this game. Uh, there's still some issues I have with it, but it is really. Um, I think you're right, Rob. It has it has shown what the elemental game could have been and should have been. You can see a lot of the old elemental stuff in there. You can see this is naturally evolved from the design docs, uh, but has a lot of Derek's, you know, instinctive uh, game design genius inside it as well. 
It's uh, something I've enjoyed putting my time into, and I'm going to put some more time into it, even though I don't have to, because I'm not a director of view or blog or anything I don't want to do anymore. Ha ha ha. But I will be putting more time into it and seeing where I come out on it. Um, looking forward to the next, to the first patch, um, because it's a little bit unstable, uh, I find. But other than that, it's a, it's really been fun. And uh, you can put me down, Rob, as annoyingly enthusiastic fanboy. It sounds like uh, Rob and Troy just gave it an eight eight point zero, and Thomas a nine point five. Uh, they sounded nine point five. They sounded a little more in the seven point eight to me. Seven point eight. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. So that'll do it for our, for our show. Uh, you can buy Fallen Enchantress uh, on, on Steam, and it is a I believe a forty dollar game. Is it not? That is correct. You can also buy it direct from um, uh, Stardock.com, or you can go check it out at FallenEnchantress.com. Or if you had Elemental, by the way, you get it for free. That's true. Or at a discount if you bought it after 2010, I do believe. Yes, that's correct. Uh, which is another pretty cool deal that Stardock is doing to uh, sort of square things over Elemental. Uh as usual, I'd like to thank our producer, Michael Hermes, for cutting this episode together, and our guest, Derek, for spending so much time with us and uh, being a good sport as we sort of dissect, uh, and in some cases, vivisect his game right in front of him. <laughs> uh, and as always, uh, my thanks to our panel for setting aside a significant amount of time on a Saturday night to chat about games, w- games with me. And we'll be back next week with, I hope, I hope, I hope, a multiplayer special Civil War show. Uh, oh, the, don't, the long... don't, don't, don't promise it. Cause no, it's going to happen. And if we don't promise it, it's never going to happen. Okay? All right, we'll, all we'll, right. No more, we're not going to pull so, McClellan on this anymore. So you're, you're backing me into the corner here. Yes, absolutely. I can, I can do any night except Wednesday. All right, well, we're going we're gonna to make it happen. Bruce, all right. you, you with me? Yeah, I'm with you. All right, that was resounding. If, if I'm not with you, I'm a guinea. I love it. Perfect. All right. Uh, So, hope you'll join us next week uh, for for a discussion uh, of our experiences as we as we fight the civil war uh, shoulder to shoulder. Uh, But for tonight, say good night, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you again for having me on. Bye, all. Good night, everybody. Buona notte.